Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Glad you're here for Amen Bible Study. Uh, we have a couple of important chapters to look at today. And uh, remember, we're, we're going to study Romans next year, so put your Romans hat, your theological hat on. That's going to be a great study, and we'll see how long it takes us to get through it. First time we did Romans, I believe it was three years. We won't take three years this time. We'll move a lot faster. But take your Bibles and open to um, 2 Samuel chapter 23, and while you're turning there, let me just uh, sort of mention what this is all about. I think a lot of times these chapters are, are not uh, noticed very much by Bible students, and it's unfortunate because they're very important. And the reason is that the Christian life, if you're going to live it, is a life of warfare. And you'll, you'll notice in First and Second Samuel, I mean, from the very beginning, this is, there's a lot of blood and guts everywhere. Uh, David's career begins with confronting Goliath. And all the way through, he's dealing with physical threats, and he's exercising physical violence. Uh, it's, it's a uh, very conflicted world in which he lives. And the reason is, David has been anointed as a king, and a king leads a kingdom. There are other kingdoms in this world that are not so happy about his kingdom. And when you seek to establish a kingdom, you arouse all the other kingdoms uh, to whom you are a major threat. There are many reasons why other kingdoms want to wipe out your kingdom. So if you're a king, uh, you, are, you have a big bullseye on your chest. And so here we're coming to the end of 2 Samuel, toward the end of David's life. We've already had his last words. We have this beautiful summarizing poem that he wrote about the grace of God and the glory of God. Uh, but here we're going to have a summary about some, uh, some military issues. Why? Because it's always military. In the Old Testament, it's just military, military, military. And it's an all-out war. Well, Paul of course, picks up on this theme. And he basically is saying to us, do you realize you're in war too? And, you know, for example, in the Ephesians that we studied some years ago, he says in chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says, take up the whole armor. And he mentions, of course, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and then the sword of the Spirit, and so on. And sometimes we get this idea, I think, in the Christian life that, you know, on the appropriate occasions, we're going to enter spiritual warfare. And that usually means we're going to have a long prayer meeting or we're going to march around a city and pray as we go. And those, all those things are good. I, I, obviously, long prayer meetings and march around the city and praying for it's really important. But we call that entering into spiritual warfare, which betrays our misunderstanding of the Christian life. Gentlemen, the Christian life is warfare 24-7, 365 days of the year, except for one out of four years. It's 366. It's ongoing all the time. That's the point that Paul makes. Just like it was in David's life, because why you're a king. Remember, 
Christianos means a little Christ. A Christian means a little Christ. And a Christ is anointed. Prophet, priest, and king. You're anointed. Prophet, priest, and king. You have a big bullseye on your chest. You're seeking to implement, facilitate a kingdom. That's the reason that you're little kings and princesses, because there's a kingdom. There are other kingdoms, dominantly the kingdom of this world, and it is very hostile. Therefore, you are constantly at war. And uh, it's important to remember this, and therefore, it's, it's going to take something out of us to be engaged in this war. And I want us to look at these two chapters, because I believe in these two chapters we see two things that are absolutely vital for us to function as Christian men. Uh, chapter 23 will show us one of those things, and chapter 24 will show us one of those things. You know, uh, the Grizzlies won a great game last night without Mike Connolly, and we're all wondering if he's going to make it back, and even if he does, can we, can we beat this next team? You know, the, the, the odds, uh, the sportscasters are saying, are not, not very much in the Grizzlies' favor, uh, but we've had odds against us before. But, of course, when Michael Connolly hits the, the floor, everybody's going to go crazy. Why? Because he's so bold and courageous and you know playing injured and all these guys play injured of course you can't play 82 games or whatever it is and not play injured that's the only way you play in the nba you play injured so these guys are very courageous but it's not only fred schaefer that has to remember this but every one of us this is a game <laughs> it's just a game i remember <laughs> yeah and i remember uh, you know uh, some of you know bill and marcia thompson who are the uh Marsha is my sister's, uh, my, my wife's sister, and they're the parents of uh, Peyton Manning's wife. So that makes me, I guess, a uncle by marriage. But uh, when my Marine son went to uh, the battlefield, uh, I believe it was in Iraq, his first tour of duty, he got a letter from Peyton, and it just said, you know, our fans get real excited about our games, and they're really proud of us, and we, you know, we play injured, and we do all this, and he said, but he said, Ben, what I do is a game. And he said, I'm so proud of you and thankful for you for what you're doing, you know, fighting a war for our country. I thought that was a very nice thing for him to, to write. Very rarely do athletes have that insight. <laughs> They're in a game. They happen to be paid millions of dollars to play their little game, you know, and we all get really excited about it. And we're so proud of people, you know, when they fight through their injuries. But, gentlemen, uh, even the military is not fighting the, the war you're fighting. The military is fighting battles that we're eventually going to lose anyway. I mean, I think about what my son did in Iraq and in Afghanistan. <laughs> you look at it at the map today, basically makes no difference. Now, he did what he was supposed to do, and he should have done it, and he did do it. And we must do that, fight for our country and do what our generals tell us to do. But if you look at, for example, what Lawrence of Arabia did, one of the greatest military movements ever, in the Middle East, it's all gone, whatever he thought he accomplished. And that's the way military battles go. But gentlemen, what we're engaged in is all-out war that makes all the difference in the world. So my son, who is on the military field, when he got that letter, he said to me, Dad, the ones who are the real heroes are the ones who are the missionaries in these places. He had seen enough of the lay of the land to know how difficult it was to live there. And I have to agree with him that our missionaries are serving to win people to Jesus Christ. And that will never be taken away. And I think about one of, one of our heroes in, 
Jordan, Aileen Coleman, who, who will celebrate 60 years of ministry in Jordan uh, this coming June. And uh, her hospital clinic there, 50 years, under constant threat by the imams who resent their being there. I mean, this is a Muslim country. And this woman evangelizes. For 60 years, she's been evangelizing right under the nose of the imams. And they complain constantly to the royal family. And you know what the royal family in Jordan tells the imams? When you treat the Bedouins like that woman does, then we'll listen to you. And she's been treating the Bedouins for 60 years. And I asked her one time, how many do you think you've led to Christ, Aileen? She said, well, I don't know, but maybe around 200. And I just think of, of that wonderful day when Aileen and all of us are going to see those Bedouins marching their way to Zion. And now there is the spoils of a great battle. There is real victory. There is real warfare. That's what we're about. In order to do it, it takes great, great courage and great loyalty to our commander-in-chief. That's what's required. That's the reason we sang that opening hymn. Uh, grant us wisdom, grant us courage so that we do not miss the kingdom's goal. And uh, that's what we want to look at here. The Old Testament is a picture. It's a nice little picture of what redemptive life is like now. We enter the service of the king is 24-7 at the risk of your life and all of your possessions. That's the picture of the Christian life. Let's not forget it. So let's turn to chapter 23. We'll begin with uh, verse uh, 8. And here we're going to see that uh, David and the, the historian here, uh, the author of Second uh, Samuel, is giving us the library of names who served faithfully with David. Let's read these. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshab Bashabeth, a Talcumanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. How'd you like to have a name like Dodo? Or what's your daddy's name? Oh, Dodo. Uh, and then get this, son of Ahohai. Oh yeah, I'm from Aho. Uh, these things I guess don't translate very well. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of A.G. the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men, so you see now he's, he's describing, he's going to do this in, in uh, categories. He just described what he called the three mighty men. These are three very valiant men. Now he's going to talk about the 30, but before he talks about all the 30 as a group, uh, and these 30 are kind of like the, uh, I guess, the seals, but he's going to talk about some leaders among the 30. And that's where we are now in verse 13. 
and the three of the, chief, of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials, we believe. We're not real sure what the word aerials means, but we believe it's an armed soldier. Two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man, or that could be translated a fierce and powerful man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Elikah of Herod, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mabunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Meharai of Natopha, Helib the son of Baana of Natopha, Ittai the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Parathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abialban the Arbathite, Asmapheth of Bahirim, Eliaba the Shalbonite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphalet the son of Ahazbi of Maacah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Peari the Arbite, Igol, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelech the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. 
Now, why did I show off the fact that I had studied the pronunciation of every one of these words? <laughs> the reason is, these are real men. And uh, if your name were in there, you'd appreciate it being read too. Uh, yes, sir. And if you're one of the 30, and you're a, you're a SEAL, and you flew over and took out, what, oh, what's his name? Uh, you would appreciate it if everybody else would appreciate what you did. And that's what these guys are. So uh, we may not remember their names, but when you get a chance to acknowledge that they existed and that they were great warriors for the kingdom, let's acknowledge who they are. It's very important to do that, I think. That's the reason those names are there. And remember this, we'll come to this in a moment, but this was the mighty 30, and notice there were 37. You say, hmm, what's that all about? Well, let me make it more confusing. Turn to First Chronicles 11 someday, and you'll see there are more than 37. So why do they call it the 30? There's always room for one more. And it always grows and it changes. Some of them, like Uriah the Hittite, died and others replaced them. And the role keeps growing. So it's the 30, but it's a flexible role. You can be in it too. That's the point. So this 30 is a group that we might all think about joining uh, uh, sometime soon, like this morning. Well, let's look first of all in uh, chapter 23, 8 through 39. And what we see here is God's kingdom is advanced by loyal and courageous men. God's kingdom is advanced by loyal and courageous men. Now, when men are not available, uh, then women will do. And I don't mean that in any way in a disparaging way toward women. It's just that in some of the kingdom work, it's very dangerous. Uh, and men generally are called to take the most dangerous places in kingdom work. And when you don't, God will put a woman right in there. And you see that, of course, in, in the Old Testament in Judges. Uh, and you'll see it in other places, and you see it today. Just like Aileen, by herself, with Eleanor Salto, who eventually died by fire uh, in uh, that compound, those two women, on their own, went to the middle of Jordan and started that clinic. Uh, that's, called, that's called loyalty and courage. Now, the reason I say courage is obviously these are, these are valiant men. They are loyal and courageous men. For us to be effective, you have to have courage. And just like we sang in the hymn, you ask for courage. Courage is a gift from the Lord. It's not just a natural gift. God has to give you courage. And courage is that boldness to lay your life down on the line, be willing even to die for a great cause. But it has to be combined with loyalty because you can be a courageous thief, but you want to be a courageous, godly person. So your courage has to be tied to loyalty to the king and the right kingdom. You have to get connected with God's cause and get connected with God's Messiah. So that's the reason that your courage is of no value if it's not connected to what God's doing in the world. That's the reason that you just got to give your life to Christ. You've got to get connected with Him. He is the only right king for the universe. Why would you be serving some other king, some other kingdom, serving yourself? You're missing the entire agenda of the universe. Jesus Christ is the appointed ruler of the cosmos. So get in line with Him. Being in line with Him, now you lay down your life. And it's 24-7. It's all the time. And, of course, the Bible says that a cowardly man will run at the rustling of a leaf. But a godly man is bold as a lion. And the reason is we know who our Messiah is. We know who stands behind us. And we know that this is all worth it. We're not afraid. Of course, our bodies sometimes do get afraid. Sometimes you can find your body trembling when you're facing intimidating moments. But you tell your body to get it going. 
and get it going in the right direction. So it takes loyalty and courage. Now, first of all, in verses 8 through 17, we see here some extraordinarily loyal and courageous men. Extraordinarily loyal and courageous. I mean, I'm looking at this stuff, and it's hard to believe that this man, Joshab, uh, Bathshebeth of Tachamanite, can kill 800 people? What is that all about? I mean, this is just almost unbelievable. It's, well, if it weren't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. And, and then you have this guy who fights so long and hard uh, that he fights un, until his hand is glued to his spirit, uh, to his sword. And he can't let go when everybody else has fled. And then, then you have uh, Shammah, uh, is it, um, who when everybody had fled, yeah, next to him, verse 11, was Shammah, the A.G. the Hararite. Uh, the Philistines are gathered at Lehi, and there they're stealing the uh, food from the Judahites. And everybody flees except for Shammah. And he stands there and defends it and struck down the Philistines. And then after he strikes everybody down, everybody else comes and gets their food. These were extraordinarily loyal and courageous men. And you know, in our uh, kingdom work, God does give us people like that. Uh, just being in India a few weeks ago uh, with uh, our missionary there, some of, some of you know Raju Abraham. He's actually been in an Amen Bible study a few times. Uh, Raju, I think, is one of these extraordinary, extraordinarily loyal and courageous men. He's constantly under threat from the fundamentalist Hindus who want to destroy him. Uh, he has to go leave his compound in a different, from a different uh, way, different time of the day, every day, so that they don't predict his patterns and bomb his car or whatever. Uh, he has, he and his organization have uh, led uh, seemingly 25,000 people to profess their faith in Jesus Christ in a land where we had no converts for 200 years after William Carey went to India. It was the graveyard of missionaries. 10,000 baptisms. Now, there you go. Extraordinarily loyal and courageous and fruitful. We have people like that. Let's thank the Lord for them. Uh, they're, they're mighty men, and we need to pray God to keep raising them up. And uh, let's pray for our children to be mighty men and women. So uh, you'll notice here that these people, <laughs> they are so loyal and so courageous. I mean, it's as though nothing stops them. In verse 15, David is just sort of, you know, he's been running from Saul. Uh, he's been running from home. And he just sort of wistfully says one day, you know, Memphis has got the best water of anywhere in the world. Oh, what I would do for just a glass of good old Memphis water. That's what he says about Bethlehem. You know, because everybody's water is different. You know, it comes from different um, wells, and it tastes a little different. Oh, what I would do for just a cup of that good old Bethlehem water. Well, these three mighty men hear that. And that's all they need. <laughs> so they go, and the language here is fairly explicit when it says in verse 16, the three mighty men broke through. <clears throat> the word there is literally cut through. They didn't sneak in. They fought their way in to the heart of Bethlehem to get to that well. And then they they get a, <laughs> some water, and they uh, brought it to David. Your wish is our command. 
And oh, how uh, we would take the slightest little thing that Jesus says and lay down our life for the slightest little thing that He says that He wants out of this world or wants out of His people. That's loyalty and courage. These men did that. Notice what David did when he got it. He said, he said I cannot accept this. And watch his logic. He says, this is the blood. He says, Lord, I can't do this. This is the blood of your men. So David can't drink blood. Only God can consume blood. That's the reason that we're never to drink the blood in the sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's, it's sacred. Blood is where the life is. The, the life is in the blood. You know, Leviticus says over and over again. So David says, these men went and got this water at the risk of their own life. This is like their blood. And I'm pouring it out as a libation before the Lord. So David worships God with that great sacrifice that these men had accomplished on his behalf. And here's what David is saying. I'm not God. And I don't send people into battle for my personal cause. And so when you get someone who's president or a commander-in-chief or someone who's a general in the Pentagon or even a, a, a staff sergeant, you don't go kill somebody or take on a military exploit because of your feelings of revenge or because you want something. Same thing in ministry. You don't raise money for your cause so that you can live in a lifestyle that you've been longing to live in. You don't take the perks of Christian leadership and use them for your own comfort and convenience. That's only for the Lord. And when you receive those gifts, whatever they are, when you're in the Lord's ministry, you pour it out as a libation to Him. You're not worthy of it. He is. So when someone lays down their life, God help you if you're asking people to lay down their life for you. No, you're asking men to lay down their life for Him. And David was really clear on that. So he wouldn't participate in the benefits of the sacrifices of God's men. And woe be to any of us if we try to benefit from the sacrifices of God's men and what they're doing for Him. So David was quite aware that David was going to have a greater son, that there was going to be a Messiah to come, that there was going to be a great conqueror. He's the one who gets all the glory. So David pours it out. But look at the loyalty and the courage of these men. Oh, that God would give us men like that. And God would give us that kind of loyalty and courage. Well, look at verses 18 through 23. And here you see that we have to have leaders of loyal and courageous men. And Abishai and Benai, they didn't attain to the three. They, you know, they weren't the top of the class, but boy, they are some kind of leaders. And they are leading the seals. They're leading the 30. And they do it quite well. Uh, and they have earned their stripes. They have shown their own courage. And David set them up, one of them, as the head of the 30 and the other as the head of his own personal bodyguard. And it seems to me that only God can give these leadership gifts where some are leaders among leaders. We need leaders among leaders. If God has so gifted you, you need to step up and be a leader among a leader, which means now there's a bigger bullseye on your chest. And there are more sacrifices you're to make. But you're to step up. If God has given you the ability to lead and a desire to lead, you must cultivate those leadership gifts and then, of course, show great respect for the 30 that He gives you to lead 
or the bodyguard that He gives you to lead. And that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. It works, God works through leaders. And it seems to me, I, maybe I'm biased here, but it seems to me that the men in the church are the ones who primarily need to step up. When you, when you look at a church that's really vibrant and healthy, you'll find the men in the church take the lead that they're supposed to take. And we need women. And the, we know very well that women do pretty much most of the work of the church. I don't, you know, even a vibrant, healthy church, that's the way it is. The women are deeply engaged and they also exercise tremendous leadership. But they should not be exercising that alone. And they shouldn't be taking the riskier uh, jobs within the kingdom. The men ought to be stepping up and doing that. You'll find that in any vibrant organization of spiritual leadership. So they're leaders of loyal and courageous men. Notice in verses 24 through 39 that then, of course, you have to have the loyal and courageous men. And this is not all of Israel. This is a select group. And I just I want to ask you, is there any reason why you can't join this group? Is there any reason why you can't be part of the 30? You don't have to be an extraordinarily courageous and loyal person. You don't have to be a leader among leaders. You just simply have to be loyal and courageous. Is there any reason why you can't do this? Even Timothy, who was by nature a very timid man, and Paul had constantly to convince him of this, that he had now the Holy Spirit. And he said, Timothy, you've received the Holy Spirit. And God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. It comes by the Holy Spirit. And God will embolden you to be the man He wants you to be. Trust Him. Lean on Him. Study Him. And God, we all have a different starting place. Some people by nature just have good nervous systems. Some people by nature are leaders and some people by nature are bold. Some of us by nature are just more timid. Paul selected Timothy to be one of his key leaders to carry the baton. He picked a timid man to be the next generation of leadership in the kingdom. So is there any reason why he couldn't pick you? And here we are, loyal and courageous men. There's no other way to do the work. Now you'll notice in this list that places like Herod, uh, uh, the Helez, the Palatite, uh, Tekoa, uh, so many of these, Bethlehem, these are all places within Judah. So David on this list is starting with his own tribesmen, those that are closest to him. But it doesn't end there. If you go through the list, you'll find, for example, look at verse 27, Abiezer of Anathoth. Anathoth is in Benjamin. That's another tribe. It's a neighboring tribe, somewhat friendly, but it's a different tribe. So David's recruiting people from all over. Keep reading the next name. Uh, no, not the next one, but uh, look in verse 29. You have Ittai, the son of uh, Rabbi of Gibeah. What is Gibeah? That's Saul's hometown. So David's willing to take Loyal, loyal and courageous men, even from Saul's hometown. Keep reading, and there are foreigners in here. Look at verse 34. You have uh, uh, Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbi of Maacah. That's a foreign country. Look uh, on uh, in verse 37. Zelech, the Ammonite. Those were historic enemies of Israel. And then, of course, 39, Uriah the Hittite, and uh, the Hittites are foreigners. 
So David was able to bring men together who are loyal and courageous, and it doesn't matter what the background is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever you are, or nothing, you know, uh, or somebody who went to church but didn't believe a word of it. It doesn't matter what your background is. Uh, the Messiah will take you in from all over the world and put you on his special team of the 30 uh, who are going to be loyal and courageous people. Now, you can't help but notice the last name in the list, Uriah the Hittite. And it's interesting, uh, uh, 2 Samuel emphasizes that, 1 Chronicles doesn't. So, so why is the author of 2 Samuel sure to say Uriah the Hittite? Don't miss the point. This is the same guy that David had killed. David had him killed, one of his loyal and courageous men. And here's the point. The author of 2 Samuel is saying, don't make gods out of mere men. These people are not perfect. And we've studied this over and over again. David had, we're going to see David sins big again. David's a big sinner. He's a big leader and a big sinner. If you want to lead, you're also going to be a sinner. If you want to make a big difference for the kingdom in Memphis, guess what? You're going to make some huge mistakes against the kingdom in Memphis. As soon as you're put up in leadership, as soon as you're trying to help anybody, you're going to be, you're going to be a problem to one degree or another. Why? Because you're a sinner. It's your lifelong task to bring your whole self in submission to Christ. It's a battle. The biggest battle you have is with your own flesh and bringing things under control, under the Messiah Himself. But we have here, look, among David's mighty men was Uriah the Hittite. That tells you a ton right there. Now I've put here some references uh, at the end of Roman number 1, some biblical references, just simply to say this. You will find that in the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, they do just what David did. They're always recruiting a team. And if you think you're going to be the rugged individual that goes out there and makes a big difference for Jesus all by yourself with no help, that's a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. It's the height of folly. You don't do kingdom work by yourself. David didn't do it. It's one reason all these are listed here. Make it really clear, this kingdom was not established and then reestablished by David on his own. David recruited a whole team. And you know, no matter what your leadership is, I'm sure you feel the same way I do. You know, I get the microphone on Thursday morning and Sunday morning, and someone who's naive, who maybe steps in every once in a while, says, oh, look, look what Sandy's done. That is absolutely ridiculous. I haven't done anything. really. What I've done mostly is pray for people and watch them do some amazing things. It's true. And if you're in spiritual leadership, you know that's true. And this is being made clear here. This is not David's kingdom. It's a, the kingdom of God, and he recruits loyal and courageous men. He does raise up a David. He does raise up the extraordinarily courageous, and he raises up leaders. But he raises them up, and he's the one who does the work. But he does it with teams. And you'll notice Jesus, he had 12 apostles. He had the 11 who were loyal and courageous eventually. Eventually loyal and courageous. And then look at Paul's life. He's always traveling with partners. And you see here, I've mentioned some texts. Maybe the most famous one is Romans 16, uh, 3 through 16, where he lists many men and women, all kinds of backgrounds, who are hard workers and loyal, faithful ministers working with the Apostle Paul. Paul was the one who wrote the letters. Paul's the one who did the travels. Paul's the one who uh, led in the churches. So we all know his name. But don't forget all these people that God is constantly raising up. And if someone faithfully were to write the history of the kingdom of God in Memphis, every one of your names would be on it. And don't forget that. 
God never forgets one of His servants. And He doesn't forget one little thing that the least of His servants does. The writer of Hebrews says, God is just and He will not forget what you've done to serve Him and His people. So when you are in this warfare and you're on His team, you are not forgotten because God does build a huge team to do His work. He does use you at various times to lead. But you're leading men whom God will never forget for the work that they have done. Now we move to chapter 24 in the minutes we have left, and this may actually be a more important lesson. And the way I've summarized this is simply to say, Roman numeral 2, God's kingdom is ultimately advanced by God alone. God's kingdom is ultimately advanced by God alone. This is vital for us to grasp in these last 15 minutes. So let's, look, let's read these first 17 verses of chapter 24, and then I'll make some comments on it. Verse 1, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer. They then came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great, but let it me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned 
and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Okay. God's kingdom is ultimately advanced by God alone. Gentlemen, it is true that in the advancement of His kingdom, God raises up loyal and courageous men. There's no mistake about that. But then sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that it is loyal and courageous men who usher in the kingdom of God. That's a big mistake. Yes, He does raise up loyal and courageous men, but ultimately God alone advances His own kingdom. This is so important to remember in our day because we get so carried away with big evangelical power plays. You know, I was talking with a guy one time who had a lot of discretionary uh, money to give to different ministries, not from Memphis in another city. And we were talking about the need for prayer among churches. And he made this statement to me. Oh, you know, we've solved that. I said, oh, really? How'd you solve that? Well, we funded this major prayer ministry. I thought nobody but an American evangelical would, would ever dare say such a thing. You think that you've solved the prayer problem because you've, got, you've financed a strategic prayer ministry. That is outrageous. You think that with your money, you're going to win the world. American evangelicals think if we just get the right strategy and get the money fueled into it and mobilize a few human resources, you know, we can take the world. No, you can't. We need the Lord alone to do the work. Yes, indeed, when He does the work, He'll raise up courageous and loyal men. But it's not the courageous and loyal men who pull it off. It's the Lord alone. David made an enormous mistake. And he knew better. All you have to do is look at his last words. God will bless the man who fears the Lord. And David stopped fearing the Lord and revering Him as the only one who could change the world and establish his kingdom, and David began to count his troops. It's a major mistake. He started to play like an American evangelical who thought he was going to pull off the kingdom through his material resources. Now, once again, you know, I'm, I'm always raising money for missions. So we do, it's not as though we don't believe in means. We do believe in means, money, people, strategies. But we don't depend upon them. We don't put our trust in them. We don't put our trust in horses and chariots. We put our trust in the Lord alone. This is a subtle combination of both and. We commit ourselves to means, and we don't trust the means ultimately. We trust only the Lord. That's the way you go about the work of the kingdom. And you can always tell when a, when a loyal and courageous man gets this, he's loyally and courageously engaged in the kingdom, and he's constantly in prayer because he knows that his loyalty and his courage is not going to win the day. His resources are not going to win the day. And when we look at the situation in Baltimore, in St. Louis, and as Bobby prayed a little bit earlier this morning, and, and the strife that we have in Memphis, of course we should protest when there are injustices. Of course we should address the political issues. Of course we should press for good public policy and, and racial justice. But gentlemen, the one who's going to solve this is the Lord God Himself through His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the only answer for this. And if we don't know how to pray about it, it we're not going to see a difference. It's going to come through the Lord sovereignly, majestically, mysteriously, and miraculously doing His work through loyal and courageous men. That's the way we've got to look at it. So first of all, Notice that A, verse 1, God uses 
He doesn't cause, but He uses our sin for His purposes. This is an amazing text because the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He incited David against them. God incited David to say, go number Israel and Judah. You say, I don't understand this. What is God up to? Well, if you look in 1 Chronicles, the chronicler tells you it was Satan who incited David. It's all true. David did it, Satan did it, and God allowed it. So God does not cause evil, but remember, brethren, we've talked about this many times, God is sovereignly in control of all evil. No evil happens unless it is allowed by Him sovereignly. And He can direct evil. He's not the source of it, but He directs it. And He takes the heart of a king, and in his, in his, that heart of the king is in His hands, including even the evil deeds of the king. Here you see it. Why is God doing it? To discipline Israel. God was angry at His people. So He incites uh, through allowing Satan to work through one of the leaders to bring judgment upon Israel who deserved it. So be aware of this. There are things that we can't see. When you find things going on in churches or in cities or in businesses, even including Baltimore right now, I don't know what all is going on there. There are multitudes of things that God is doing there we know nothing about. But the story on CNN is not the ultimate story about what's going on in Baltimore. And neither is it going to show you the outcome from Baltimore. Neither is it showing you who the real loyal and courageous men are. You know who they are? They're the men of God who are in the middle of this, leading people to Christ, teaching them where racial justice has its roots. It's in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, working the streets, ministering to people, caring for those who are hurting. That's where the loyal and courageous men are at work. That's what the kingdom of God is doing right now, and it won't end up in the news. It's the same here. It's the same in your business. Even when you've got troubles, you don't really know what is going on. God is doing multiple things. You have to keep your eyes open to look for what God is doing in both disasters and in times of prosperity. So God uses, not causes, our sin for His purpose. And I've given you here several examples. Job would be the classic one. Now secondly, B, verses 2 through 9, God's leaders sometimes confuse human and divine power. Even Joab, who had not a sensitive conscience... Joab was a rascal. Even Joab says, David, what are you doing? Joab knew not to count the men, that that was a violation of trust in the Lord for Israel. When you go counting all your troops, you're not supposed to count them. And I just look at the American Evangelical Church. What are we doing? We're constantly counting. How many members you got? What's your budget? Da -da -da, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all this. It's all material things. Nobody's really looking for what God is doing that's much deeper than that. David was counting. He wanted to know how much power he had. He wanted to know how many divisions he had. And when you've got God leading your nation, you don't need divisions. This was the problem. He confused human power with divine power. If you want divine power in your life, you must surrender ultimate dependence upon money, upon good looks, charm, personality, influence, power, you must surrender those, as you, uh, those idols in order to have the power of God. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that they may know the power of God. And you'll only know that power when you surrender these other forms. Military power, political power, we all exercise them. 
We believe in means. We get involved. But we don't believe that's the ultimate way to usher in the kingdom of God. This is the mistake David made. Then verses 10 through 13, we see that God disciplines his prideful leaders. And to David's credit, you know, he had Nathan the prophet who challenged him and corrected him. Now he's got Gad the prophet. Gad already in 1 Samuel has given David good advice. We've seen that before. David retains spiritual advisors. And gentlemen, if you know yourself well enough, you know you're going to get into trouble, and you're very silly if you don't retain spiritual brothers, advisors, the gads in your life. You need gads. And Gad comes to David and says, David, here's the story. And Gad gives him three choices. It's kind of like, you know, you want to slide down a razor blade, and you, know, you, want, you, know, you remember that old story, or have a ball of snot thrown at you, or, you know, fall in a bowl of vomit. What would you choose? You know, all this... And he's given about three choices like that. You know, what do you want? And David's answer is very interesting, isn't it? He said, I'll trust the mercy of God. Don't put me in the hands of men. So David's lived long enough now to know even God in His judgment is merciful. I don't trust men. I trust God. So that means the pestilence. So 70,000 men lose their lives. as judgment for what David did and judgment for what Israel did. And then his hand is stayed at God's direction when they get to Jerusalem and the holy city is protected. And God says, that's enough. And God, in His mercy, is, He's merciful even in His discipline, gentlemen, of you. He does not discipline you more than you need. And He stays the hand of the angel who's carrying out the discipline. That's enough. And, of course, uh, it's at the threshing floor of Arana. We'll get to that next week with another very important lesson about what this all means. But uh, David uh, is disciplined through these three years of, of these three days of pestilence. But then notice verses 14 through 17, God's mercies never fail. And David, before the stay of the hand. Verse 17 is really crucial because David speaks to the Lord and when he saw the angel striking the people, he says, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. What's David saying? He's saying, Lord, would you please just punish me? Would you please bring all that pestilence on me and my household? Would you wipe us out and don't touch the people? This is called love. Notice that love, by its very nature, is substitutionary. And those of you who have children, you know, you would willingly stand in front of a car and take that car running right over you if you could push your child aside and spare your child. That's love. It's always substitutionary. David wants to exercise substitutionary love here, and God won't let him. And the reason is, David's not qualified. To, t- to bear the pestilence on behalf of the people. For one thing, the people are being disciplined. The other is, David has his, has his own reasons to be disciplined. He can't be disciplined in the place of these other people. Who's David? How can he possibly do that? So God doesn't allow David to be disciplined or to take the punishment from God for all the people. But gentlemen, this points right straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. What Israel and what the church and what you need is someone who loves you enough to be your substitute and to say, Lord, let all that fall on me. David wasn't qualified, but David's son is. 
And God sent the most valiant man who ever lived, the most loyal and courageous, extraordinarily loyal and courageous to his father and to you. He did not commit a sin. Therefore, he didn't take pestilence on himself. He was qualified now to stand in your place and take your punishment. That's exactly what David's greater son did. And he pled with the father, Lord, let me have that pestilence. Of course, it was brutal. And he said, if there be any other way, may this cup pass for me. Nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. And God raised up a qualified substitute so that in God's substitutionary love, He put His Son in your place so that you will not bear the wrath of God. David's just a foretaste. In all of his imperfections, he just shows what he would long to do if he had been qualified as the ultimate Messiah. But he's not. But Jesus Christ comes as the qualified Messiah. And gentlemen, that's exactly what he's done. He has loyally and courageously put himself in your place and borne the wrath of God. And then the call comes to us. Will you stand up? Will you be a loyal man to the one who stood in your place? Will you be the warrior? Will you be courageous? Will you lay down your life for the kingdom of God? And will you trust ultimately in God alone to bring about His own kingdom? Let us pray. Father, thank You for these very important lessons that are in Your Word. Thank You for the men who have gone before us, who have been loyal and courageous, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the church age. Help us now, Lord, to commit ourselves to this and to be numbered among them, to be one of those 30, and to, even more importantly, to be one of the 144,000, to be one of the, of the great church of Jesus Christ being raised up around the world through the ages, through faith in you. Now, Lord, bless uh, all of us as your sons. Help us to serve you faithfully, loyally, courageously today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.